0: This is a big-timing comedy production.
1: Welcome backstage. Uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist.
2: VIP only.
3: Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are aids. Are you jumping or am I under-medicated?
2: You're listening to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks.
3: I'm with the
1: band, okay?
3: Hey, welcome to Backstage Pass with Meredith Marks, episode 29. I have done so many Yacht Rock episodes, but baby, we are back one more time. This time, we're going to steal away with Robbie Dupree. Hey, welcome to our show, buddy.
0: Thank you, Meredith. How are you?
3: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's a little cold up here in Woodstock, but I'm okay.
3: Yeah, you guys are getting the chill up there. We're in Baltimore and we're feeling it too. It's Mm -hmm. literally like uh, fall brought winter with it. (laughs) We didn't really have much of a fall.
0: There was no fall, yes.
3: Yeah. So tell me, we've got so much to talk about. Um, You and I are Facebook friends. I love your posts. Let's start there. Um, You are absolutely hysterical because you post the greatest videos ever. Do you kind of stumble upon these things or do you search out? Because let's explain, like you'll post videos of of, 70s disco dancing, but the weirdest things ever. And people love that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, from Russia and the Ukraine. Yes, Yeah, it's become my life's work to um, share this, these videos with people, like a missionary.
3: <clears throat> well, it's funny, and people like that. And I think in this kind of world, in this day and age, it's good to break up all the Facebook craziness with the funny.
0: Well, I mix it up between hate and love.
3: Yeah. yeah. Y- you just shared a video of my daughters uh, doing a Halloween challenge. and. Yes. Thank you for that, which is great. They were excited. They're like, he shared it? It was so cool. So they loved that. Good. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Talk to me a little bit about this whole yacht rock phenomenon. It, it kind of um, circled back several years ago, and you guys all got on this train together, and you tour with several of your buddies. Tell me what that's like now.
0: Well, it started about six years ago for me when um, my old buddy and music partner, Brian Ray, who's the um, guitarist and bass player for Paul McCartney, and he played on all my early records and still we have a musical relationship. And he was on a cruise and he he called me when he got back to Miami and he said that um, there was a great band called Yacht Rock Review from Atlanta and they were very interested in hearing stories from him about playing on my early records. And um, and I thought that was interesting. And he said, give them a call. They're great. And I did. And they were playing in Manhattan, oh, maybe a month or two later. And I went and joined them at a little tiny club. They were still on a small level at that time. And um, it was called the Canal Room. And I went and sat in with them. And they were terrific. And that started, for me, that started the relationship. You know, and um, I started to one by one bring other peers of mine who made records back then in the 70s and 80s. And I introduced them to, you know, Beckett and um, Ambrosia, The Wilder, Ambrosia. They are lots of people. And then it turned into what it is now, which is a really cool. They, they've exploded. You know, they sell out everywhere they play. Yes, they and do. They play, big, they play. They just played. In, um, in Atlanta, they sold like 6,000 tickets. So it's, it's, um, it's a serious thing. And from time to time, they bring guests. And I'm lucky to be one of them. And from time to time, I, I work with them. I'll be doing, um, Boston Friday. And then in November, Long Island and New York City. And, um, so those are three opportunities that I get to play with them and it's really lovely they're great guys and they play great music
3: now let's set the tone for people that that have not seen them I have seen them they're incredible um people are wearing the captain's hats (laughs) they've got the yacht not in the band but in the audience right in the audience everybody's dressed up it's so cool it's really everybody kind of gets into the groove of this thing it's it's a neat thing to be a part of
0: yeah I think the thing to really understand to really give it perspective is that they're responsible for giving this music a brand new young audience. That's what they did. Yes. They usually, if you would play a show like this, which I would not do, I wouldn't play a kind of a quote oldie show, but with them, it's a brand new audience in their twenties. And so it's a treat to, you know, go and do that, um, have those kind of gigs with them and to have exposure to all this new audiences that have never seen us on our first time around, you know. So that's really the, the fun thing. And, the, and you know, Jimmy Fallon had a lot to do with the party because Jimmy, um, for, for a while, uh, did Yacht Rock shows on his late night show. Right. Christopher Cross, McDonald, myself. Stephen Bishop, Ambrosia. I can't think of any others, but um, he had a lot to do with it, you know.
3: He did. And here's the craziest thing about uh, Yacht Rock Review. Um, This is how small of a world it is, Robbie, because you don't know this. I went to an all-girls boarding school here in Maryland. There were only Mm -hmm. 170 girls, 8th through 12th grade, and they came worldwide, and one of them became one of my dearest friends in high school. And her name is Elliot, and she is married to Nick from wow. Yacht Rock Review. How That's, crazy is that? My grade.
0: I know Elliot very well, and it's terrific. They're a great couple, and
3: they are. She's they a wonderful a person, partner,
0: Emmy Lou, and yes, yeah.
3: It's just, terrific. and and I and I did not realize, you know any of this but we're you know everybody you find things out on facebook and then you know it all comes together so um that's when i went to see them is a year and a half ago it was just awesome it was just awesome to see do you kind of feel i mean i i don't really want to use the term second chance but do you kind of feel like almost it is a second chance at a go-round with your second chance
0: for the old songs yes you know and um and and I don't think most of the people that I mentioned have really gone on and continued to do new music. Um, I have, and I, I probably have a dozen albums. And of course, none of them will ever achieve the kind of success of those early records. But, you know, if you have something to say, you want to come out and say it. So I do. So for me, it's a chance to play the old music for a very appreciative young audience and it is a second chance for the music, you know. To look, there's now a, a yacht rock channel on Sirius XM, and it's one of my favorites. It's, yep, it's a serious, it's a serious trademark now, you know. And um, and I feel, you know, fortunate and lucky to uh, to have that opportunity.
3: Uh, a lot of people are are, are really humble. And humbled by uh, being able to be a part of Yacht Rock, uh, I sat down with Peter Satara and I mentioned it, and he said, "What's Yacht Rock?" And I go, "Really, really?" He said, uh, "Am I a part of it?" I said, "Yes." So some people that are a part of Yacht Rock don't even know, but most people are really into it and uh, and are loving it. And like you said, well, second, uh, you know, it's a new Peter exposure. Cetera,
0: yeah, Peter Sutera is a different kind of a guy yes um and i think that the people that are into it who embrace it don't take themselves overly serious and um they have a good time with it and there are a number of artists that should be a part of it um who don't uh participate in it or distance themselves from it and i think it's because they're um hung up on something you know that they just can't get loose and do it
3: now, when I interview people, for the most part, when I ask about their earlier influences, I would say probably, and Mike might agree with me on this, 95% say the Beatles. Um, I'm reading here that your earlier influences were Marvin Gaye and Sam Cooke. And I read that and I go, yes. Yeah. Well, feeling you know, the soul. It has, soul. To do
0: with, it has to do with how you grew up and where you grew up and what things you were turned on to. It's very hard to give influences because you're influenced by everybody when you're coming up and and so those were two major choices when but there are to. many many influences that have um affected me even though my music isn't anything like their music but I they they were just I wasn't ever really a Beatles fan as much as I was a Stones fan and I like the R&B and the blues vibe more than I like the rock vibe. So it's pretty natural for me that that was it. But I also had influences back in the 60s, like Paul Butterfield and his blues band and Taj Mahal and lots of different kinds of music. But you can't write all of that. And then people say, oh, you don't sound like them. But that's not the point. The influences have to do with – I remember – in the sixties when everybody was wearing hippie clothes. And I always wondered since I wasn't like that, you know, how would I ever fit in and be able to play music? And then I went to town hall and saw the Paul Butterfield blues band and all those guys looked like me. They dressed like me or I dressed like them. And I realized there was other things besides bell bottoms and, um, and Tiki Tiki's not just about the costume.
3: You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I know what you mean.
0: So if you, so just in terms of those kind of things, you relate to people, um, and their struggle and their successes, you know, and that's how, that's how I look at all of the influences.
3: In 2012, you released a new album of covers entitled Arc of a Romance. Um, can you tell me some of the covers that you did on that album?
0: Yeah, with the exception of one or two of them, they were kind of obscure, um, there's one called Coronation Street, um, which I'm not even sure if it was ever on a record, but it was a beautiful song that I was turned on to when I was in Europe. Um, then there was, um, let's see, I Only Have Eyes For You, which is a completely different version than the one that we're all familiar with, but that was always a song that was a huge inspiration to me. And I was even afraid to do the song until so much later in my career because it's such a a powerful record, you know, and if you do it the wrong way, it's a cliche. Um, and there was the Isley Brothers' um, Living for the Love of You. Oh, and yeah. um, there was a group called Prefab Sprout that was an English group, and I loved them, and they had a song called um, We Let the Stars Go, and that was another one that I thought was amazing. So it wasn't so much like I was doing a songbook or anything. It was that I just didn't think these songs would fit in in any other project. So I created a project for for the songs.
3: One uh, One of our viewers now, Josh, he wanted me to ask you about the Girls in Cars song. For (laughs) he wanted me to ask you about that uh what he wanted me to ask you i'm not sure but he said ask him about that song so for josh anything that you want to tell him about that particular song
0: well for anybody who's heard it or seen the obnoxious video it's um i got a call i think it was rick derringer was producing a record for the wrestling federation, whatever it was, WWE or something. And, um, Cindy Lauper was involved with the whole rock and wrestling thing. And, um, uh, I was off the label at Electra and it was a lean period and the money was good. And I thought, well, no one's ever going to see this, you know? So <clears throat> Darren, you wrote a song called girls in cars And I recorded it and somehow it continued to hang on because there were so many wrestling fans that had no idea of anything else I did, but they knew about that song. And um, and then the video was, you know, silly. And um, the whole scene was kind of crazy. You know, the whole wrestling scene and being around pro wrestlers who were giants who were all jacked up on blow. And it was like <laughs> the most scary, the most scary session <laughs> I ever went in my
3: life. Do you have any regrets about that? Or uh, are you good with, uh, with having done that?
0: I have no regrets about anything in the, in the business. You know, it was all, it's like I sang. Well, it was a funny little song. And um, if, if, it turns out that a lot of people really enjoyed it and liked it, so I'm not going to judge it. I'm just telling you that for me it was sort of a crazy offbeat thing, and it, and it, and it started this whole thing that everybody started to send me songs about cars <laughs> and because I had Hot Rod Hearts was a hit, and then right. completely as a non-sequitur, Girls in Cars, which was not connected at all, but just doing two songs like that that led to like a a million songs coming of every kind of car song.
3: Um speaking of hot rod hearts, Mike, let's play that for for a few seconds. We're going to talk about hot rod hearts. Here we go. Hot Rod Hearts. Robbie Dupree. Love this song. That lead was strong.
1: Young love born in a back seat. Two hearts pound out a back feet. Headlights, but it's coming. Got it to move. Keep on running with
3: the hot
2: fire. going to get us thrown off a of Facebook here.
3: All right. Fade that out. Oh, I love that song. But tell us about Hot Rod Hearts. Come on.
0: Well, it's a too long of a story to go into the whole thing, but I'll tell you, we, um, how do I even start? Okay. I had a singles deal with Elektra. I didn't want to take the album deal they offered me, which was really too small. And so the deal was that um, we would put the single out and in 90 days, If it wasn't a hit, I was done. And if it was a hit, they would have to pay a lot more money to make an album. And so it was in like 60 days. It was already way up the charts. And they called for the album. And even the president of the record company came down to the studio and said, we've got to get it done. It's got to get done. We're losing sales. So we heard the album up and got it all done. And... That night, when we were all finished with the mixing, I went into the studio with the engineer and my two producers, and they looked very grim. And I said, what's the matter? And they said, well, we don't have another single. And I said, well, it's too late for that. Joe Smith was here. He wants it on Monday. There's no time. And I don't even have another song. So just get that idea out of your heads. This went on for... At least a couple of hours. And it turned out that the engineer had a friend named Bill Labounty, who was a songwriter, who had a song that wasn't even quite finished. But Bill ran to the studio and played it for me on piano. And I resisted doing it. I did not want to do it. But I finally made a deal that if we could do it in 24 hours, top to bottom, it'd be okay. But I had to turn the record in on Monday. And so that record got done in 24 hours, recorded, finished, writing it, mixed and ready. And when it was all done, I finally realized that they were right and I was wrong. And, um, and, uh, that became the next single and the next, the next big hit. And that lead in the beginning is Brian Ray, the guy I talked about from Paul McCartney's band, who, um. Is the one who turned me on to Yacht Rock Review.
3: That's amazing. I'm going to tell you, um, most of the songwriting stories that we have heard, most of these top hits and greatest works of art come together uh, unexpectedly, spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Am I right, yeah. Mike? Absolutely. I mean, we've heard so many of these stories. And it goes, God, you know, like... You, you would think some of these songs took so much longer, but no, it's unbelievable. I love, I love stories like that. So cool.
0: Yeah, well, like I said, if it was up to me, it would have never gotten done because I was, you know, under pressure to get this record in on a Monday and they <laughs> played it for me on a Friday. So we had Saturday to do it or Sunday, whichever it was, but we had one day to do it and there wasn't any... Um, I mean, we just worked around the clock.
3: But people love oh, people that song. Love
0: that. Yeah, and I and I love it, but I'm just admitting the fact that I was dead wrong about not wanting to do it. See, it was out of context yeah. with everything else that was on that record. And now, of course, when things live together for a long time, they sound perfectly normal. But to me it stuck out. You know, it was not any of the other songs that were about anything those subjects or anything and those the choice of language in it you know and all it just seemed like really foreign but i i learned a lesson and um and it was it was a good lesson to learn and i i paid attention and bill LeBounty and i became songwriting partners for i don't know a dozen years after that
3: see things happen for a reason yeah they really totally. truly do i believe in that i do Take us back to 1981, Grammy nomination, best new artist. Tell me about being at the Grammys in 1981. You've got to hear some stories. I know you've got stories.
0: Well, there are a couple of things to say. The first thing was it was kind of easy and there wasn't any pressure because I knew that I was not going to win. Because How did you Christopher know that? Cross had like four or five hit songs and yeah. eight nominations. And, you know, it was a clear, clearly not going to happen. me so it made it a lot a lot easier in truth you know i had been a a club musician for years before any of this stuff happened and um i felt a little out of not a little but a lot out of place at the uh, at the grammys themselves and where i was sitting with the nominees it was michael jackson and diana ross and quincy jones and you know, just these mega stars. And I felt like such a tourist, you know, that I, uh, (laughs) I was like, what the? am I doing here?
2: So just go by and touch each one of them.
0: (laughs) I just kind of sat quietly and, um, and I, and I just waited for my, uh, my category to pass, you know, and I felt better after that. But the fun thing was, you know, all of us, we were very outside of the mainstream. We never, um, none of the guys that I worked with were part of the LA scene. You know, we were all really outsiders. The studio we worked at was a very small home studio in North Hollywood. And everything that we did sort of came from left field. You know, it wasn't like we didn't work with the backing guys from Toto and all of the usual suspects out there, you know? So, um, I think we all felt pretty much like strangers in that world. And that night we went after the event. I had brought my parents and um, at the time my wife and my two producers and a couple of friends. And there was no place at the party. We went to the Grammy party and like it was just jive. You know, a lot of record company people who had no business even being there, you know, and so Peter, my drummer and producer, said, Listen, hold on, I'm gonna make a phone call. I'm gonna call my cousin. He has a bar in Garfield, New Jersey. And let me let me call him up. So he called his cousin and his cousin said, Yeah, bring everybody over. We'll have a party right here. Because the so Grammys
3: were in New York that year.
0: They were, yes, okay. they were. Okay. Radio City. Yes. So we jumped across to Garfield, which is half an hour away from Manhattan. And we walked into a bar full of Italian-American friends of Peter, my drummer, <laughs> and relatives. And they were cooking lasagna and ravioli and the drinks were flying and my parents were in their glory. And it turned out to be really where we belonged. And, and, uh, and ever since then... I don't think I ever participated in any kind of music industry thing again. You know, I just that's, never really felt comfortable.
3: That, that That's the best Grammy party I think I've ever heard in my life. Who doesn't want to go wherever there's lasagna and meatballs. It went on all night and, oh,
0: you know, it was just a, this amazing food and it was, it was wonderful.
3: That's awesome. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So I... I mean, some people say, oh, you should have done it. You would have met all these people. But I don't know. I yeah. I, I just never fit in in that world.
3: Yeah, it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's really not. Sure. I, I love I love when, you know, you, everybody's so humble. And it's good. It's good to stay humble. You seem very humble.
0: Well, I was, I was just out of place, you know. It's like walking into a room full of fashion models when you're not. You know, it was like these people were all established, 20 year artists with discographies a mile long and, you know, fame. And I was like a newcomer. So um, that's just the way I felt about it. And, and then I realized that it just, it wasn't for me. So I stayed in LA to work for a couple of years more. And then uh, when that deal was over, I left and came back to New York where I felt much more comfortable.
3: Take us back to the days of steal away.
0: Well, the days of Steal away were, um, I was dead broke and I left Woodstock and I hitched a ride with a bartender who I knew and went to LA to c- catch up with this band who I'd met in Woodstock and who had moved to California. The name of the band was Kraken and they were on Warner Brothers and it included the guys that played on, that eventually played on all my records. Um, And I found them and said, I don't really have any money, but I'd like to see if you guys would like to produce and play on a solo project. And I have a few songs that I brought with me and, um, and some more I'm going to write. And they said, yeah, whenever you get it together. So I got a job in a, um, in a, in a bar restaurant out in Venice, California. And I was a host and, um, I did pretty well there and made quite a bit of money and that was the money that we used to finance the recordings of four or five of the songs that eventually became the album Mm. and nobody bought the record. Well, half a record. Nobody wanted it. Every record company passed and I was faced with the reality that this was probably it after a long run that nothing was going to happen. And I'd done what I wanted to do with the people I wanted to do it. And sometimes you got to fold up and go. So I went back to New York, no deal and, um, and got a job loading carpets on a truck in Long Island. Um, and it was hard work and I was kind of bummed out about it, but that was the way it was. And a few months later, I received um, a phone call late at night from my drummer's brother who had played in a social setting, had played a cassette of these songs and uh, for a man named George Steele, who worked at Electra. And it affected him in a personal way. And they called me up and said, if you come to California next week... George will give you a record deal. Wow! Unbelievable. I first I thought it was like a joke, you know, and then I realized that George Steele was serious, and and um, and I flew to California the next week and got the deal. And really, the rest was just what I talked about before. You know, we we finished the record in a hurry, um, and. The first hit was big. Steal Away was a big, big hit. And, you know, it was unusual to be like from obscurity to like Midnight Special and Dick Clark Show and Solid Gold and all of the TV shows and everything. I I was really quite surprised by all of it. So, you know, there's a million little stories, but, I mean, that's the big picture on it. And I remember the first time we heard it. The three of us, Rick, Peter, and myself, were together in the apartment in um, West L.A., and somebody called us up and said, hurry up, uh, your song is on the radio, and we turned it on and caught the last half, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea, you know, that yeah. it was gonna,
2: that know, snowball. That, that, that first time on the radio, huh?
0: That was the first time, in L.A., on Alexandria Avenue— in the room where we wrote the song and all of a sudden it was on the radio and believe me, I'm not being modest. I'm being honest. That was like, to me, the high point, you know, like hearing it on the radio. Oh yeah. I never imagined that it would be, you know, we'd be talking about it now and it's 38 years later.
3: What was and that initial reaction? Did you, did you, did you laugh? Did you cry? Did you jump up and down? I mean, were you screaming? I just want to know the feeling that you had hearing that.
0: I think we were all trying to play it cool, you know, because we realized this was just a small parallel three station in LA really didn't have any significance, you know? So it was really a personal moment that we would mm-hmm. just like looked at each other and said, "Wow, well, you know, I guess we did something, you know, we good work. And that was about it. And then all of a sudden that was maybe in like April and then it just exploded everywhere, wow. and um, and no matter where you went, it was on the radio. And now today, I think it just crossed like five million airplays in the United States. <laughs> so that's a long, long journey for the song and uh, for all of us, who, by the way, still perform together.
3: Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So you have the guys that you played with in the in early 80s. You're still playing with those guys.
0: The main guys, there's a couple of new people, but yeah, Rick chutikoff Peter Bonetta, Leslie Smith, Brian Ray, you know, still working with them, still recording with them.
3: I mean, that's pretty damn special, Robbie.
0: I know. Well, you know, we felt that we had something very special going into it, that we, you know, really cared each, about each other a long time ago in Woodstock days. And then, um, and then the success bonded us, you know, and we knew each other's parents and, you know, watched each other's families grow. And, you know, we, we just are a family truthfully and not, I don't throw that around lightly, but that's who, that's who we became and who we still are, you know? And I, I think that, um, it's what kept us all interested you know, because I really wasn't part of that get into the rock sweepstakes and see who you can play with. You know, I, I was very content with the music that we uh, that we made together.
3: I love that. I really do. I love that.
0: Well, you have to catch the show sometime, you know. it's. Uh,
3: oh, believe me, I'm, I'm working on it. I, I yeah. want to I definitely want to see you. I've seen a bunch of other people. I have not seen uh, you or, you know, John Ford Coley. I haven't seen I haven't seen Christopher Cross. You know I hang with Mike McDonald, my brother's Michael McDonald's tour manager. So I'm always with Mike, but um yeah. and he has people out. We got I got to call Mike. I got to say let's let's get Robbie out for one of your shows. I Got to get you with yeah, uh, he's with Michael playing, McDonald
0: he's playing at the end of this well now maybe even. He's at the um um what's the name of the place in Manhattan? The the Carlisle. Yeah. He's at the Carlisle for like 10 days or something oh
3: my. okay we're gonna we'll talk you and i'll talk <laughs> we'll, we'll try to figure something out
0: it's I only don't... a little 80 seat lounge it's where i don't know you're young so you may not know who bobby short was but bobby short was a guy who sang um cole porter music and he was very you know his girlfriend was gloria vanderbilt and it was very high society oh. that's that's what the carlisle was but as that audience grew older and older they decided to start bringing in they brought in christopher cross they brought in um um who's the david johansson like very deborah harry oh
3: yeah
0: not doing like production like doing small like piano bass kind of stuff you know very cool cool thing to do
3: i mean mike does like I'm not exaggerating. He, The man does like four hour sound checks sitting at his piano. <laughs> I mean, he could probably just sit there all day and he could probably just sell tickets for people to do a rotation of going in and out of that theater, watching a sound check and people would be very happy.
0: Well, you know, there's certain people that defined the voice of their era and he, and he defined that voice, you know, certainly for the seventies and eighties.
2: Yes, he did. Mm-hmm.
0: That, that was the voice Um, and before that it was people like Marvin Gaye and, you know, when, when singers were distinctive, when you heard Sam Cooke, you knew it. When you heard Aretha, you knew it when, you know, everybody had a particular James Taylor, Frankie Valli. Yeah. They were all like, they all had a, a very identifiable thing. Of course, his, is easily one of the most identifiable and, um, that's changed, you know. As time has gone by, there's more of an interest in sounding the same as everybody else. And um, I don't think it's a great trend, but that's what that's what's going on.
3: That's what I literally just said to my twin 12-year-old girls. I, I'm listening to their stuff, and believe me, uh, when I drive them to and from school, we listen to the Yacht Rock Channel, 80s on 8, 70s on 7. We listen to uh, – She's raising
2: them right. I am raising them
3: right, right? I mean, I got to. My dad, that's how my dad raised me. Yep. Um, I mean, I was raised on Manhattan Transfer and Frankie Valley and Chicago. And I mean, that, I was raised on great music and I want to expose my kids to that. But when I get talked into, mom, can you put on our channel? Everything sounds the same. And it drives well, me nuts.
0: You know, what it is, is that it's really about the records and the sound and the dance ability is just a different thing. You must remember that starting in the sixties, perhaps with Bob Dylan, that music m- had to mean something.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You didn't just until the disco era. Are we on, are we on regular? We're not on regular radio. We can speak our minds. Can't we? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to judge the music and say it's not good. I just want to say that it's not really about as much as it used to be. And when you think of people like Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield, they laid down some heavy shit, you know, and it was about the, the environment and the war and the, you know, music had meaning depth and people conveyed it even in a context of funk mm. or groove or whatever it was, James Brown, whatever happened. And, um, it's different today. A lot of the things today just happen to be more lightweight than they used to be. There was a period when, when rap music in the beginning, when it was a very urban Bronx, Brooklyn kind of scene, that it really was more of the, um, social consciousness thing, whether you liked it or you didn't, but it was saying something, you know, but it, it's, it's sort of fallen into, song and dance routines, you know, with people lip syncing and everybody dancing around them and bombs going off. So it's just another, it's another thing. You know, the kids don't even care that people don't sing on stage that they lip sync because they want to see them dance.
3: Yeah. It's about, now the we- pro- it's about the production. I, I took yeah. the kids to, to a Taylor Swift concert and I have to say it was incredible because the production was amazing. Sure. Um, uh, you know but and the ki- watching my kids faces i mean that just lights up my life um are you are you happy she- that you had the success okay. that you had at the time that you had it i mean the 80s that was that was the time i feel 70s 80s
0: well you know i think it's natural for people of a certain age always to remember the music that was relevant to them at the time. So it's natural that my parents would have said there was nothing like the music of the post-war forties, Glenn Miller and Buddy Rich. And, oh yeah. You know, Tommy Dorsey. So I think it, it's natural for us to um, identify that is back circling back to the yacht rock thing. That's what's so interesting to think that this, huge movement of young people who are digging on Yacht Rock, it will become their music that they'll remember when they're 40 Mm -hmm. and 50. So it gives another life to the music long beyond how long I'll live. You know, it's just these kids will be adults and they'll be playing it for their kids. They obviously have made a, a qualitative choice to dig this music as opposed to something else. That's what I think.
3: Absolutely. I play it for my kids.
0: And you've been to Yacht Rock shows, yes? Yes. You've noticed that every single person knows every single song? Yes. That's what's a mind-blower. You go out on stage and you look at these 23-year-old people all singing everybody's songs, and I think it's pretty phenomenal. So
3: You never know what you're going to get. Um, one of my favorite shows... Gosh, when was this? Must have been uh, February in Atlantic City. It was Ambrosia with Bill and Tamara Champlin and right. Stephen Bishop. Now, um, I'm. It's no secret. I mean, everybody knows I. I have. I'm a huge Bill Champlin fan. I mean, how can you not be? He's amazing. Right. Um, but I met Stephen Bishop backstage, and and he was he was a funny thing. Uh, he, he was slightly awkward backstage he was funny but I will tell you I'm sitting in the audience and I had watched the sound check right for all these guys when Stephen Bishop came on stage he was absolutely <laughs> hysterical the yes. whole crowd was cracking up he's amazing
0: I know I've done a lot of work with him and in March we're doing some shows out in the Midwest no in the like Illinois, Michigan, Ohio area, like double bill show. Mm-hmm. And he is hysterical. And, um, that's part of his thing. You know, he has stories that are unparalleled because he's been everywhere, you know? Yeah. He's done everything. And, um, he can keep people entertained in the dressing room like nobody I ever saw. He's just hilarious.
3: Yeah really funny guy and you don't expect that when you're just sitting in the audience and you're going to like a yacht rock show and all of a sudden he comes on stage and he's just hysterical
0: right well though that show was really more of an adult oriented show yeah um that same thing doesn't work with like 20 somethings
3: correct i agree
0: yeah so that works he's he's in his element when he gets in front of a a good audience of you know more mature audience he kills them because they can relate to the humor that he has Mm -hmm. and he he probably dated every major starlet in in new york and hollywood in the 70s and 80s everyone
3: well i I know the ex-girlfriend um that he wrote the song about was hold on Um, she played in Scrooged, help me out with it. Um, and, and Superman.
0: Oh, um, Margot Kidder.
3: Yeah. Margot Kidder.
0: But he had like women from Saturday night live and, you know, he was just very handsome guy, beautiful songs, beautiful voice and a funny guy. And he just was single and just, um, so he has lots of,
3: he was single and he chose to mingle.
0: He's, and he mingled.
3: He mingled a lot, is what he you're mingled saying. Double time. He yes, mingled he the just, whole time. You're saying that Stephen Bishop was a stud puppy.
0: I'm saying he was the stud puppy. The
3: stud. Wow.
0: Like if you left you if you left your girl in the dressing room, she might not be there when you got there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's
3: great. Oh, I love that. Goodness.
0: I think also you know Stephen's why he catches you off guard is his music is quite earnest and tender. And then his humor is so not, yeah. you know, it's, it's really, I don't know the jokes he tells every night, but I mean, I know quite a few of them and um, you have to be on a certain intellectual level to really dig his thing, you know, and he's, he's funny, you know, he's just a really great guy and it's a big part of his show.
3: I'm gonna get I'm gonna get political, but in a different way than you're expecting, okay?
0: Come on.
3: <clears throat> people have said that people on a platform or with celebrity status should not open their mouths in a political way. Now, I know between you and Burley and Michael McDonald and many members of the Steve Miller band. A lot of you post and are very open about your uh, feelings on politics. Uh, I agree with all of you, by the way, and I have no problem saying that. Mikey's going to shut up right now because he's different. But um, what do you say? I want to hear your response to people that think that celebrities have no voice or no business having a voice politically. That's what I want to know.
0: Well, I really can't speak for them. I can tell you just from my own personal experience that most of those people are people that have opposing views. And and um, and that's why they, they don't want to hear it from you because they have their own. They want the music to just be the music for them. What they fail to understand is, is that in dire times that we're in, it's very important to speak up um, no matter what side you're on. Because dialogue is all we have. And if there is no dialogue, then what happened today is what happens next. The frustrations and the anger turn into pipe bombs and, you know, trying to assassinate two former presidents in one day. And, you know, we're in a crisis mode. Mm -hmm. And it's not an accident. So I will, people have written to me and said, I won't buy any of your records. I won't come to your shows. And I say, that's fine. I'm fine with that. It doesn't mean that much to me to have you there if you don't understand why I'm speaking out. And so it's okay. You know, don't buy the record. Yeah. That, that that stuff long ago went away. And I saw, I want to be on the right side of history. I don't want to tell people a long time I kept quiet when I should have said something. Thank so you. I don't have any regrets.
3: Yes. Thank you. I'm applauding you for that. Because I agree. I think that people are people, no matter if you're a superstar, if you're a musician, if you're in Hollywood, wherever you are, if you're somebody living in a little cottage down by the lake. I think everybody has a voice and should use it. And I think even more so when you have a certain platform and you can just kind of voice your opinion. Because like my dad said, Mikey, opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I'm not against
2: the I have people. have to edit that.
0: I'm not against the people who um, have differing viewpoints. I just don't want to have to be quiet because they want me to be quiet so that I can be like a trained bear and come in and play a song for them and be quiet. I, I just, you know, I served in the military during Vietnam. Um, I did my thing. You know, I'm not afraid to um talk about anything to anybody about politics and most of the people that have um that want to quiet people's voices down i feel bad for them because they're missing the point of democracy and yes. that's really not to win a point about who i'm not trying to convert people most of the people who like my posts are on that side of the fence anyway whether i say something or not but I think it's important to give them some confidence that if they look up to me in any level or any way that they feel a little bit stronger. And when you say nothing, there's a saying about it. I, I won't remember it precisely, but it was similar to this, that first they came for the gypsies and no one said anything. And then they came for the Italians and nobody said anything. And then they came for the Jews and nobody said anything and then they came from me and there was nobody left to say anything Ugh. see so that's not exactly what it is but that's the point that's the and point gotta talk up
3: yes you do yeah.
2: so so that means you silenced me
3: oh I didn't silence you sure you did you no. said
2: I'm Mike's not gonna say anything right now. <laughs>
3: because I'm not gonna start because I know where you're gonna go with it
2: actually you don't go ahead I was gonna I go know. the I was gonna go the Ted Nugent route Oh, no. That guy runs his mouth way too much on stage.
3: Okay. Kiss
2: kicked him off the tour the last time they, they reunited and took Ted Nugent. They kicked him off the tour. He was talking more than singing. Okay. Okay. So if you have some politics to talk about on your tour.
3: Yeah. It's okay. Yeah.
2: Just make sure that the music becomes the front and center of the show.
3: Yeah, when you're on you know, tour. I've been
0: around since Dirt, so I know all of that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> but i'm talking about facebook
3: now yeah
2: you know, yeah, facebook. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah facebook yeah,
3: yeah. that's what we're talking about Mikey. i don't
2: I don't follow that right
0: yeah I mean I'm not going to get up on stage and give a, sh- a speech you know that's not what I mean it's just that Facebook is a platform where this kind of exchange goes on all the time yep yes and to be on Facebook and to see some of the dialogue and to not respond it's okay if you don't want to but i just i don't encourage people one way or the other. I'm just saying personally, I get all kinds of mail from people saying, shut up, you know, and, you know, I, I want to like the music. I don't want to listen to any of this. The answer to that is unfriend
2: me. Yeah. Bingo. Bingo. I'm cool. I'm cool with or you, that. I'm or not you, mad can, you can mute each post as it comes through. Excuse me? You could Yeah, you could mute. You can mute a post as a post. it comes through. I, I have... A friend it doesn't agree with me, and all his friends pile on. They'll sometimes drag me in. So when I see it, hit one of his posts now, if it goes that right, mute. Just mute. Because <laughs> his beautiful it's, thing. Every afternoon he posts his post of the day, and it's inspiring words. Yeah. Like his morning sunrise. Like you know.
3: Yeah, things like that. Robbie, so. Robbie, I always, um, I always ask my guests the same question. This is my favorite question to ask. Because uh, this is how we're going to wrap things up with you, okay? Okay. Um, tell me about your favorite goosey moment when you look down and you've got goosebumps on your arms, and you just can't believe this, this is happening to you. What's your goosey moment in your career?
0: Wow, that's uh, that's a mouthful. I'm trying to think where it would be. Okay, well. It isn't really in my career, it's just in my life, but my my drummer and producer, Peter Bonetta, he produced many, many records, including Smokey Robinson on the last hits that Smokey had, mm-hmm. One Heartbeat, and forget the other one. Anyway, we went to Vegas to see Smoky play, and um, we were hanging backstage. I'd never met him before, and then... He said to Peter, "Where are you guys staying?" And we said, "Oh, we're gonna get we're gonna get a room. We're just gonna split a room and go back to LA in the morning." And he said, "I won't hear that. I'm in the Elvis Presley suite at the MGM. I got so many bedrooms. I don't know what to do with them. You guys come and stay with me." That so, sounds like a party. So we went upstairs with him Ow. and hung out, and we went and sat out on the roof. Half of the floor was like this suite, and the other half was like a roof space. And we went out on the roof, and we were looking out over Vegas, and Peter said, I don't know, Smokey, if you know that Robbie is a singer and a writer. And Smokey turns around, real quiet, looks at me, and he goes, why don't we steal away? Uh... <laughs> ah! So blown away. <laughs> And I, I couldn't you know I don't I don't really tell that story. I can't remember telling anybody that, that was such an incredible moment just to think that it had some resonance with, with him that that was maybe the kind of funnest moment you know yeah, that's a well. Wow. That's a
3: great goosey. <laughs> that's yeah. a great goosey. Oh man, Robbie. Okay, to remind people where they can see you in the next month or two.
0: okay. Um, With Yacht Rock Review, I'm at the Royale in Boston this coming Friday. I'm at the Paramount in Huntington, Long Island on November 9th. That's
3: my friend friend Brian Doyle's place.
0: Cool. I'm at the the, um, Irving Plaza in New York City on November 10th. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And wrapping up with my band, the last gig of 2018, is at the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock. On December 8th and we've got new singles that are going to be out online and we have I got back all of the original masters to my music from after a long struggle mm-hmm. and um, they are now all re-released steal away that album and Street corner heroes the second album they were all for the first time believe it or not in CD in America Wow That the label never exploited those records at all. It's a shame. But now they're out. They're online. They're on my website. For information about what I'm doing and what's going on and old music and new music, go to com, And that's my deal.
3: com. You heard it here. Robbie, thank you so much for coming on our show. It was so much fun to talk to you about all different kinds of things.
0: Mike and Meredith. It's it's a groove to be here with you, and I hope that I get to see you guys on a show sometime soon.
3: You will trust me. I'm I'm coming.
0: All right. Well, be good. <laughs> Say your prayers and eat your vitamins, and I'll talk to you later.
3: <laughs> All right. Mm, Robbie Dupree wasn't he fun to talk to? Cool
2: dude. Very cool dude. He's a
3: really cool dude. I like him a lot. Um, you know, that was a pretty damn cool goosey moment
2: yeah yeah
3: we've talked to a lot of people mikey
2: that was impressive
3: we always get really good goosey moments i'd say most of the time we would get good goosey moments
2: that went to the top of the list for that me. went
3: to the top of the list it's a pretty damn cool goosey moment so thanks robbie dupree robbie com. check him out with yacht rock review i'm telling you god that's so much fun what a fun freaking show I love those guys. And uh, you never know. Maybe we'll have Robbie back on because he's fun to talk to. And uh, hey, Mikey. hmm Next episode. Number 30. Number 30. Wow. I just can't believe this is what happens. Time flies when you're having fun. And we're having a whole hell of a lot of fun over here. So who's on 30? I don't know. We're going to have to wait. It's a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not telling you. To you or me. I'm not telling you. (laughs) And I'm not telling them. You're going to have to stop Uh. back and listen. But right now, I have a big question for you, Mikey. Are you ready for my question? Yeah. Why don't we steal away?
2: We should do that.
3: Into the night. I know it ain't right. But I think we should do it anyway.
2: And there's a full moon out there. Be careful.
3: Oh. Happy Halloween. Here we go. Robbie Dupree, steal away.
2: You've been hanging backstage with Backstage Pass and Meredith Marks. Now get your ass off the tour bus. This is a big-timing comedy production.